0: Hey everyone, this is Denise, and recently Zelda and I got together with a few other people like Laura from Double Deal and Beth from Reading with the Rockefellers for a holiday special, and it was so much great fun, so much great content, but we had technical difficulties it turns out, and we lost a lot of audio, so unfortunately we're not going to be able to air that, although I will see what I can do to make it happen so we can at least post it on Patreon so you can hear what we do have. And we'll have to save that type of special for the future. Until then, we're going to replay an old episode, one of Zelda and My Favorites, the one covering the Black Dahlia Elizabeth short. So give it a listen, and we will be back with new episodes at the end of January. I hope everyone has a safe and happy new year. Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast where murder and family meet as we explore the family tree of a killer well hello there Zelda hi Denise how are you doing today Pretty good. I'm pretty excited. I think I, I was telling you I'm going to be getting a puppy soon for our family, and we are thrilled.
1: I fully expect you're going to name it after a serial killer.
0: <laughs> um, uh, probably not, but you never know. I, I don't think anybody's <laughs> ever had a puppy named Ted Bundy before. I, I would hope not, but you never know. There are some really strange people out there in the world. I might be fascinated yeah. with serial killers, but <laughs> I, I don't I don't look Wasn't at them there at like, heroes either. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Wasn't there like a crime fighting dog besides Scooby oh. that was like Inspector McGruff or something like that?
0: Well there was that one and then oh was it was super there was a cartoon superhero dog. I cannot remember his name though. Back in the seventies <sighs> when we were kids. So, listeners, unless we think of it during the podcast that somehow comes out in the middle of an interesting conversation, um, if you can remember the name of it, please send it to us so we're not going, ah, what was the name of it? Are you ready to get started for today?
1: You know, um, I am. I'm, I'm intrigued because this is the first time we're talking mostly about the victim mm-hmm. as opposed to the, the murderer. Um, and so this is just a little bit of a twist on what we normally do. So that's going to be fun.
0: Yeah, I, I, I chose this one um, partly because I was motivated from the last one we recorded with H.H. H. Holmes and really digging in to learn who Minnie R. Williams was. I felt like I wanted to really know who this one was, the Black Dahlia, Elizabeth Short. And I wanted to know more about her and her family. Because what you heard about at the time and even in movies since, doesn't really get that deep in. Right. Mm-hmm. But I'm excited. I can't wait to hear what you have to share. And then I've got some stuff to tell you as well. I, I'm excited too. Did
1: you want to talk a little bit about your process or did you want to do that a little bit later?
0: Um, I'll get probably into it a little bit later. But I will say I do a lot of census records research. Since she was from the Northeast, there's some more sources available, a lot more birth records, death records, a lot more newspaper articles in some cases. So it's interesting where you live will determine what I can find online. Mm -hmm. You know, if I'm in person, there's, and by in-person, I mean, I, if I'm in the county where the person was, I can go to the courthouse and do some research there or go mm-hmm. to the local library and see what they have there. Mm-hmm. But without that, I'm doing that. That's all from a distance. And I am limited in that respect. Mm-hmm. But I did find some interesting stuff. And it was some surprises. Oh, I can't wait. I, am, <laughs> I cannot wait her life
1: was really fascinating and so I'll just go ahead and launch at this okay. point then let me tell you about the Black Dahlia so 1947 was a tumultuous year in the United States there's rationing still going on because the recovery was still happening from World War II and people returning from serving in the war were attempting some sort of return to normalcy but even aliens, aliens landed in Roswell, <laughs> New Mexico, that July. Oh yes. <laughs> How can we <laughs> resist? Well, to the story, not at all. Yeah. Um, but on January 15, 1947, a young woman was found graphically mangled, raped, naked, and dead in a vacant parking lot in Leimert Park, Los Angeles, California. The press nicknamed her the Black Dahlia as an homage to a film noir that had been in the theaters a few months before. This would go on to be one of the most famous unsolved murders in American history, in no small part because of the unrelenting press that sensationalized every detail of the Black Dahlia's life and death. And about the press, so I'm not going to go into it, but some of the things they did were just absolutely horrific, and today they probably get arrested for. Um, And I'll get into that a, a little bit, into that in a little bit, but I just thought, you know, this is the big reason we know about the Black Dahlia today is because the press took it and ran with it, whether they had the facts or not. Mm-hmm. So before she was the Black Dahlia, this young woman was just Elizabeth Short from Massachusetts. Her family and friends called her Bet. She was born the middle child of five daughters of Cleo and Phoebe May Short in Boston. Her dad's job was building miniature golf courses, and which would be an awesome job. Until the crash of 1929, when the family pretty much lost everything. So little Elizabeth actually suffered very bad lungs, and she had surgery on them when she was 15. And after that, she started spending winters in Florida to prevent worsening her respiratory problems. She dropped out of high school her sophomore year because her dream with her sister and a neighbor girl was to take Hollywood by storm. And everyone seemed to enjoy this lively young woman Elizabeth had become. She was extraordinarily pretty, but also graceful, kind, and very likable. Her shot at acting came when she turned 18 and moved to Vallejo, California, where her father was living, to pursue her acting dreams. She was only there a few months because they got on each other's nerves and he tossed her out. She (laughs) worked at a few different clerking jobs, hoping to find her big break into acting and modeling. Now, Denise, as her life choices will show, Elizabeth was something of a hot mess. Oh, yeah. She was, by all accounts, a young woman searching for validation from men. Mamas, don't let your daughters grow up to be women who search for validation from men. No. It might end up like this. The papers would paint her as a prostitute, but she was definitely not a prostitute. She was just, as they say, looking for love in all the wrong places.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: As a result, she had moved to Florida, back to Medford, then back to California right before she died. Also, as a result, she dated quite a few men. Not enough, probably, to cause modern sensibilities to even blink, but it was a bit scandalous in the 40s. So, in the weeks before she died, she was living with a friend's family and continued her partying ways and late night habits. During this time, she hooked up with a married man and the night before she disappeared, spent the night with him. He dropped her off the next day at the Biltmore Hotel as she had requested. She told him she was meeting her married sister there and was planning to return to Massachusetts. What I can't find is whether or not that was true. That doesn't actually seem to be true. No, that I, I she didn't say it, but that she was actually meeting a married sister because there's no record that that was actually supposed to happen. So either that person's lying, or maybe she was lying to him to just kind of like shuffle off the guy that apparently wouldn't leave. Who knows? But the last person to see her alive witnessed her using the lobby phone to make phone calls. So that was January 9th, okay? Mm -hmm. No one saw her again until her body was found on January 15th by a woman walking by that vacant lot with her three-year-old daughter. The woman ran to a phone, called the police, and within an hour, both police and reporters were swarming the scene. So this murder remains unsolved, partly because whoever murdered her was meticulous about cleaning Elizabeth's body. Now, I'm I'm not going to describe her injuries, but if you want to see photos that'll haunt your dreams, feel free to Google it. They are horrifying. Horrifying, absolutely horrifying. And the murder became sensational, not only for its brutality and the ease of making the victim's life scandalous, but also because less than a week after Elizabeth's body was found, a letter arrived at the examiner, a local paper, from someone claiming to be the killer. He mailed some of Elizabeth's belongings to the newspaper to prove his claim. And then of course, because people are just trash sometimes, Denise, (laughs) letters and anonymous tips began to pour in and the vast majority of them were of course hoaxes. And no fewer than 60 people confessed to killing her. So although this is a cold case, it has never been closed there are currently 11 men on the list of suspects all of whom are now dead now because you know it's literally almost 100 years later but well okay i do math bad but it's like so more like they're, they're all, all dead. dead so the um, so one of the things i wanted to pop in here was with the press so one of the newspapers called her mother and they were the ones who informed her that her daughter had died. But mm-hmm. before they told her, they pretended she you know, that her daughter had won a contest and was being an inter- being interviewed, and so gleaned all of this information from her mother before then disclosing, "Oh well, you know, really, your daughter's dead. But we'll pay for your plane ticket to come out here to California so you can help with the investigation." So. They took her to California, and then she didn't get to talk to the police forever because this, this newspaper just didn't want to get scooped. So they literally manipulated this family's pain just to make some money and sell some papers. And, of course, today I can't imagine that somebody could get away with that. They could at least get sued for intentional infliction of emotional distress or something.
0: But. Well, and, and today with the social media and stuff, I can't imagine they'd be able to pull that off as well. Because oh, yeah. back then, as some maybe our younger listeners might not realize, it was telephone and letters, mail mail, mm-hmm. and that's how you kept in touch with people. Or sometimes a telegram, but mm-hmm. you know that was with somebody who had some money. And Elizabeth didn't have the money to sit there and send a telegram. And go, hey, mom. So, and you know, even though phones were more popular, not everybody had a phone in
1: 1947. No, and I'm not entirely sure that they actually did have their own phone. You know, it could have been calling like most people did, they'd call to the drugstore down the street, somebody'd go fetch them, they had to pay to talk to the folks. So, it was a lot more complicated to communicate. So, one result of this infamous murder, murder was that on February 2nd, 1947, just two weeks after Elizabeth Schwartz's murder. California State Assemblyman C. Donfield was prompted by the case to introduce a bill calling for the formation of a sex offender registry. And so the state of California would actually become the first U.S. state to make registration of sex offenders mandatory. Wow.
0: I didn't know that.
1: Isn't that cool? I was like, okay, nothing good really came out of it, but that kind of did. Right, so, because
0: like the national sex offenders list and stuff. That's a more recent development. National oh, yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. Amber's law or somebody's law. I always (laughs) lose track. There's too many. (laughs) I think it's Adam's
1: law. Was it? Maybe. I don't know, but so, well, anyway, so, um, just, if you didn't know this, maybe, uh, maybe our listeners don't Elizabeth shorts interred at the mountain view cemetery in Oakland, California. So although her murder is unsolved to this day, two of the suspects really stood out to me. Mm-hmm. Dr. George Hodel and Dr. Patrick O'Reilly. Some of the aspects of the murder point towards someone who had medical training. And these two losers stood out like sore thumbs. <laughs> so I'm going to talk about Patrick O'Reilly first, because I don't think he's the one that did it. And it's shorter. So. But Dr. Patrick O'Reilly was disgusting. But he was also a medical doctor who had known Elizabeth Short. According to the Los Angeles District Attorney's files, O'Reilly was close friends with a mutual friend, Mark Hansen, and frequented the nightclub that Hansen owned around the time of the murder. He also allegedly attended sex parties with Hansen, at which Elizabeth Short may have been present. O'Reilly had been convicted of assault with a deadly weapon for, get this, taking his secretary to a motel, and sadistically beating her almost to death, apparently for no other reason than to satisfy his sexual desires without intercourse. Mm-hmm. This meant that O'Reilly had a history of violent crimes and with sexual motivation. He was also linked to illegal abortions. The files noted that O'Reilly's right pectoral had been surgically removed, which was similar to the mutilation present on Elizabeth Short's body. The history of violence, medical training, and the fact he knew Short makes him a strong suspect for the murder. The LAPD was notoriously corrupt during this period, by the way, and corruption is suspected to have played a role in why a murderer was never brought to justice. Notably, this makes O'Reilly an even stronger suspect because he was once married to the daughter of an LAPD captain. So... We're moving on to scum number two. (laughs) Scum number two is Dr. George Hodel. So George Hodel, who had 11 children by five different women, was charged with raping and impregnating his 14-year-old daughter, according to no fewer than three witnesses, two of whom participated in the rape. Although he was surprisingly acquitted, This led him to land on the suspect list right away. A few years after Elizabeth Short's death, police bugged his home. And this next part I actually lifted from blackdahlia.web.unc.edu because it was just such a succinct summary. They wanted to see if Hodel would make any comments to insinuate that he was involved in Elizabeth Short's murder. Most of the transcripts dull at first with Hodel having sex, berating his secretary, and talking about money problems. However, on February 19th, 1950, three years after the Black Dahlia was killed, there is something horrific in the recording. 8.25 PM, woman screamed, woman screamed again. It should be noted the woman was not heard before the scream. Later that same day, Hodel was recorded talking to his confidant. Realized there was nothing I could do, put a pillow over her head and cover her with a blanket, get a tacky, taxi, expired 12.59 they thought there was something fishy anyway now they may have figured it out killed her the surveillance routinely continued catching a highly incriminating statement suppose then i did kill the black dahlia they couldn't prove it now they can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead so the secretary referred to in the transcript was Ruth Spalding who had died from a drug overdose now due to those comments he was investigated for her murder And he had actually been present when the secretary died and had burnt some of her belongings before the police were called, which caused that case to be dropped for a lack of evidence because he he destroyed Uh the evidence, right? I'm like, oh, gosh. So documents were later found that indicated Spalding had been planning to blackmail Hodel. She was about to come forward about Hodel intentionally misdiagnosing patients and billing them for laboratory tests. Medical treatments and unnecessary, unnecessary prescriptions, and of course, he too, like O'Reilly, was linked to illegal abortions. So, this is what I love: is that Hodel's son, Steve Hodel, was all like, "Yeah, my dad did it." <laughs> you know, so he actually, you know, dug in and did some investigating. He was actually an LAPD homicide detective. So, the LAPD had retrieved a photograph of a nude Elizabeth from George Hodel's personal effects and there was a fair amount of other evidence. Now, I don't know why the LAPD didn't investigate his medical office. Later, with the help of Steve Hodel, George Hodel's son, they would test the area around Hodel's office for signs of short. They didn't find Elizabeth Short, but they did find remains of several other young women. Oh. So more than likely, Hodel was a serial killer. And let's face it, the methodical nature of the Black Dahlia murder was likely the work of someone with experience. So in April, 1950, Jemison, who was the lead detective on this case that's now three years old, had gathered enough evidence to charge Hodel and was about to arrest him for Elizabeth Schwartz's murder when Hodel left the United States. So he went to Hawaii, which was a territory at the time He got a degree in psychiatry and counseled patients, or I'm sorry, he obtained a degree in psychiatry and counseled prisoners in the territorial prison in Hawaii for three years, Mm -hmm. then moved on to the Philippines, where he started a new family and appears to have remained there until 1990, finally dying in 1999 in San Francisco without charges ever being filed. However, his son Steve has written that he believes George Hodel re-entered the United States multiple times each year from 1958 through 1988 specifically in 1966 to 1969 to commit war murders and then just returning to the Philippines each time. Dorothy Hodel, George Hodel's daughter, once stated that her father had been out partying on the night of the murder and stated they'll never be able to prove I did that murder. In July 2018, so this is just two years ago, like mm-hmm. right at two years ago, Sandy Nichols of Indianapolis, Indiana, while going through her recently deceased mother's personal effects, discovered a dying declaration letter written by her grandfather, W. Glenn Martin, some 70 years before on October 26, 1949. The handwritten envelope read, In case of Margaret Ellen's or Glenn Eugene's death, and was initialed WGM. The letter was written out of fear that one or both of his teenage daughters might be killed. Oh. The three-page letter identified W. Glenn Martin as a paid LAPD police informant working for Sergeant McCauley from the LAPD internal affairs division. He described his activities as working undercover for LAPD detectives to help them identify and arrest corrupt police officers. In his word, it was to try and see if other officers could be inveigled into crime. So it went on to name G.H. on 17 separate occasions, identifying him as a personal acquaintance um, of himself, as well as Sergeant McCauley, and named him the killer of both the uh, the Black Dahlia and a second woman, Lois Springer, the Green Twig murder victim. And the Green Twig murder was another famous LA case.
0: Right.
1: Um, Martin's letter claimed that both he and G.H. personally knew the Springer woman and that he believed G.H. also killed her. LAPD at the time was actively investigating the Louise Springer and Black Dahlia murders and had publicly identified them as probably connected. Springer um, was garroted, the the Green Twig murder, was uh, on June 13, 1949, just two blocks from where the body of Elizabeth Short was found in 1947. Included in the letter was the fact that the LAPD, after being informed that G.H. knew victim Springer, that G.H. was taken in and grilled about the Springer murder. The Martin letter made it clear that G.H. was known and protected by law enforcement officers and that they let him go. Martin's instructions were that his letter was to be opened only in case of harm coming to either of his daughters. No harm came to either of them, so the letter remained unreported, and in the family's possession for 70 years until discovered and read by Martin's granddaughter. Steve Hodel has linked his father to many other unsolved murders as well, including the Zodiac Killer and presented evidence that George Hodel may have been the writer of the legitimate 1970 Zodiac-coded cipher mailed to the San Francisco Chronicle and turned over to SFPD. The solution and cracking of the cipher was performed by Eve Person, a high school teacher in Paris. According to person, George Hodel, using Ogham, an ancient Celtic alphabet, signed his real name, H-O-D-E-L, placing it both as the return address on the envelope and as a signatory inside the card, which read, you ache to know my name, I'll clue you in. The code had remained undeciphered for 45 years. And Steve Hodel's theory on why George Hodel killed Elizabeth Short was that she suspected him of committing another unsolved murder in Chicago known as the lipstick murder and had found evidence to link it to him directly Hmm. and that's that's Steve Hodel who is George Hodel's son right and some of his stuff's controversial the LAPD at this point has looked at it and said good enough for us your dad was the murderer um But other people are like, yeah, I don't know. You're just assuming all this stuff is right instead of some of it being conjecture.
0: I I don't have a problem with him thinking George Hodel killed her. And based on the way she was killed, I do think it would have been a serial murder because one thing you didn't mention about the body was that all the blood had been drained out of the body as well. Mm -hmm. so there was a lot of time involved in this murder and, Somebody's well, like not a to I mean,
1: do Yeah, and she was bisected, uh, in right. a basically a medical procedure. And so there's nobody if you didn't have knowledge of how to do that, then it would have been a much different looking job. So true. Um but which, doesn't it kind of give you the creeps about how many doctors are involved in this? Like well, it's I've so heard-
0: gross. <laughs> I, I, watched, I listened to another podcast, The Murder Squad, and, and they actually, even though we were working on this, they but recently covered this and they were talking about how the body was found and one of the commentators is a former homicide detective oh. and retired, and he was talking about back in the day, it was seen as it had to be a doctor, but where it was bisected, it could have been anybody. Because it oh. wasn't in a particular place where you had to do it there, it just could have been luck. Or could have oh. been a butcher, even so interesting it's just the police wanted to I think think that the average person wouldn't do something like that, so it would have to be somebody with knowledge. Mm-hmm. so we might not ever know that part, but I know it had to be a serial. My only problem with Steve Hodel's um, theory is that I think he goes too far when he's adding murders like the Zodiac mm-hmm. because most. Serials follow a pattern, Mm -hmm. and that was completely different, not even close to what had been done before. Mm -hmm. I could see possibly the lipstick killer and the green twig murder because there is some similarity, but Mm -hmm. when you get right to it, that one just seems far off. And I think that's where Steve Hodel has gotten controversy because he's gone beyond the scope, right? And who knows, he could be right, but. In my mind, it just seems well, it, it
1: seems
0: unlikely, I think, with
1: George Hodel that you know a serial killer has to keep killing. It's rare right. that they just stop. And the fact that he was in the Philippines, um, he his son linked him to a series of killings in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. But again, he was never charged for any of these crimes that his son is asserting he committed with the uh, Zodiac killer, I mean, I can go either way with it, to be really honest, because there's a lot of evidence, circumstantial evidence, that it, it could be George Hodel, you know, especially that, you know, yes, it's different, but it's also, you know, you're talking over 20 years later, so people evolved their technique, but apparently the handwriting was substantially similar, and the idea of, I mean, I don't think it was new to him in the 40s to Hey, I'm going to include the police in with this letter that right. you know, so I can lord over how smart I am. Um, but, you know, if you look at it, this guy was all around just as horribly nasty person. And I mean, let's face it, raping his daughter Tamar, getting her pregnant, and then she had a back alley abortion right. to get rid of it. And then the whole trial basically made her out to be this huge liar. When she wasn't lying, and everybody was a little bit surprised he actually got to walk away from that. But, you know, again, the times being that, you know, a 14 year old would be considered not a child, but an underage woman. Right. Which, you know, so there's this distrust that what women are saying about it is true anyway. But yeah, so I'm leaning toward George Hodel having killed the Black Dahlia, is what this kind of all. Or well, he might have been in cahoots with O'Reilly.
0: <laughs> Who knows? But as you were talking, something struck me. And we'll get there. Because I, I I was busy doing a little bit of quick research to make sure I remembered what I thought I saw. Because it was one of those newspaper articles I ran into. And I'm like, oh, well, I don't have any purpose for this. And then you mentioned something. I'm like, let me go take a look at this again. And we'll bring this up in a little bit. But before that, um, we'll go back to elizabeth unless you have anything else to add about the case i have hit the high points so <laughs>
1: so i'm good at this time now i'll just pester you with lots of questions
0: oh that sounds good well as you said she had five sisters and her father was cleo alvin short jr and mother was phoebe Mae sawyer and it was you know a house with five girls A house of seven They lived in not Millbridge. I'm getting really confused for a second and you'll understand why in a minute, but they lived in Medford, Massachusetts, which is a suburb in Boston. Basically. I want to talk about Cleo really quick because my impression of him is he was a nasty man. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: He was not a good guy. Um, (laughs) In an AP article on 18th, January, 1947, um, The following was mentioned. Cleo Short, Elizabeth's father, was located here, meaning Los Angeles. He said he had been estranged from his wife and daughter for several years and did not intend to attend an inquest for Elizabeth. Basically, he wasn't interested in learning anything about her death. And this is his quote. I want nothing to do with this, he told reporters. I broke off with the mother and family years ago. My wife wanted it that way. I provided a trust fund for their support. In 1943 I told Elizabeth to go her way and I'd go mine Wow now it also came out that he refused to identify her body making <laughs> his yes making his wife Phoebe and her Elizabeth's sister be the ones to identify the body Wow he wanted nothing to do with his family and <laughs> there's so much wrong um, so like you said, times got tough in the 1920s for the family. And with him, apparently, he decided to stage his own suicide/slash disappearance. Wow. So in 1930, they found his car empty, parked in a parking lot next to the Charlestown Bridge. Wow. And he was nowhere to be found. Now, <laughs> he left, he disappeared. At some point, he found himself in Texas. He contacted Virginia, the oldest sister of Elizabeth. He never contacted Elizabeth from anything I could find, but he contacted Virginia let him know where she he was at one point. This is where it gets interesting because I think Cleo is clearly lying about how he split with the mother in that quote I mentioned, um, saying that his wife had agreed to it and all this because... According to LA Times January 1947 on the 19th, Mrs. Short was surprised to learn that the husband from whom she never bothered to get a divorce is now living in LA. If Betty knew her father was here, she never told me. As far as the mother knew, he was he disappeared, he was gone, he was dead. Wow, did not know about his existence. And in 1947 he was working as a refrigerator engineer by that time. And let's go back really quick because there, the What I did forget to mention was that in 1942, it's clear that by then he had made contact with Virginia because he had filled out the World War II draft registration, and he left his oldest daughter as his familial contact or his emergency contact. Wow. Right? And at the time, he was living in Robertson, Texas, eventually making his way to California between then and 1946. Okay. I will talk about, it's, where do I start with this whole family, Um, but they, there were happier times. Phoebe and Cleo got married in 1918 in April, and they had their daughters. The first one being Virginia May Short, who was born in 1920. She married Adrienne Charles West, an engineer, and they married in California in February 1945. Now, I have no idea what brought her to California, but I wonder if it's not possible that she went and stayed with her father briefly. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that Virginia and Adrian had children. Um, I think one girl and two boys, but it's hard to verify because the last names of West and short are very popular. And to find this information, the California birth index is wonderful. I can put in the last name of the child and put the last name of the mother, and see who was born. Well, there's a, sometimes it works great because you have such a unique name and the combination is rare. But in this case, it wasn't. Throughout the trial, Virginia, there's pictures of Virginia with her husband and her mother. And they were present at the, mur- at, not the murder, they were present at the burial of Elizabeth in Oakland. Naturally, their father never came to the funeral either. Um, Virginia and Adrian divorced in 1967. He remarried two years later. She never remarried and passed away in 1985. The second sister was Dorothea Short, who was born in 1922. And let me tell you, this is one kick-ass woman. <laughs> I, I got to say this because she, during World War II, joined the Navy waves. The women oh, wow. the volunteer emergency service. That's cool. Yeah. Yes. And during her, this time, she worked in D.C. as what's called a stripper. Now, that is not somebody who's taken off their clothes. No. she was But she was doing it out of patriotism. Yeah, so she was doing <laughs> it. She was out of patriotism. She was cracking codes. And I found this by finding her obituary from 2012. And it says that... And this was on May 11, 2012, in the Kansas City Star, that at less than five feet tall and under 100 pounds, she didn't meet Navy's, the Navy's physical criteria. They sent me home and told me eat a lot of bananas and milkshakes. She went on to become what she laughingly called a stripper. She ripped strips of paper from the teletypes, relaying intercepted Japanese code. As we were decoding messages, we got pretty good idea of how things were going in the Pacific, she told elementary kids. When she was there for an oral history project: That's cool.: uh, I thought that was very cool. While she was doing that job, she met her husband, also from Medford, Massachusetts, Norman Schlo- Schlosser or Schlosser, who was a bomber during World War II, and they got married in 1948, had five children, nine grandchildren and some greats, and that number has probably increased since 2012. I thought that was pretty amazing.: That's cool. <laughs> Sister number three, or I guess number four, the fourth child, was Sister Elnora, and she was born in 1925. Now, I have to say something here to any genealogist who might be listening. You are all wrong if you are saying that she is dead. She is very much alive. That's exciting. And I won't reveal what her married name is, but people found an Elnora Short who died in 1998 in Tennessee and have now put this information <laughs> on these family trees, making it seem like this poor woman's dead when she is far from it. She, last I checked, which was a couple of days ago, she's a 95 year old or almost 95 year old woman, very happily enjoying life. And nice. so beautiful. Um, but please be careful before you start saying somebody said verify the information because she's very much alive. And the last sister, Muriel Short, she was born in 1929. So this means when her father left, she was one. Oh, and let me go back to Eleonora really quick because her gravestone, you can find it because she's, she is going to be buried next to her husband someday. And what was mm-hmm. sweet was that on her husband's it says, beloved son of least both of his parents. I found it telling that said on under her name for when she's buried says beloved daughter of Phoebe and no mention of Cleo. (sighs) Mm -hmm. And why would he be? He wasn't there for her at all. Mm -hmm. Muriel also is still very much alive and she, this is kind of cool. I mean, she, Fell in love with her husband, probably in high school. They graduated in the 1946 class at Medford High and got married two years later. And he was a Navy vet named Earl, but he died pretty young at 30, age 36 in 1964. Mm -hmm. I know. And as far as I can tell, she's never remarried. She ended up raising three daughters on her own. Oh, Wow. So let's leave them alone, though. And that's the most I'm going to say about the girls. Now, Phoebe, well, before we get into Phoebe, I'll I'll talk about Cleo again. Cleo is a hard find. And what I mean by that is Cleo was born in 1885, according to the um, World War II draft records and his death records. He was born in October 1885 in Gloucester, Virginia, and he died in the 60s in California. What I found really interesting is being a junior, I can't find his parents at all. and he lists their names he said his mother's name was Alice Billups and there's a couple of those but I cannot find them with his parents so it makes me to wonder because this guy would disappear is it possible because he would have married Phoebe at the age of 33 Mm -hmm. is it possible that he was lying again and that wasn't who he was it makes me wonder because it's so impossible to find him. And I looked at other people's trees just to see, if, was there a hint? Mm-hmm. And there's nothing I can find. Oh. A couple of people have theories, but they don't really fit, I don't think. So mm-hmm. it has me at a loss. So Okay. But Phoebe was 17 when she married. She Maybe married a
1: 33-year-old she when she was 17.
0: Yes. Wow. Now, yeah, she was born in 1901. She was the daughter of Charles Turner Sawyer and Ella Lenore Brown. And she was originally from Millbridge, Maine, which is where I made that mistake with Medford. <laughs> and let me tell you a little bit about Millbridge, Maine first. Millbridge, Maine is situated in Washington County, and it was originally settled in 1765 and it was incorporated in 1848 from a part of Harrington, Maine. Millbridge sits on the mouth of the Narragagas River. If I'm torturing it, I'm sorry for all you in Maine. Um, it's a very small town, a coastal community, with right now with a population of close to 1,300. The biggest the population ever seems to have gotten was 1,900, and that was closer to the turn of the century. Washington County and Millbridge, that area, has, is noted as being the most eastern part of the United States. Now, since it's on a coastal area, there's a lot of fishing there, a lot of seamen, um, sailors. I know. Go ahead and laugh. (laughs) She said (laughs) seamen. Okay. Okay, sorry. Um, But her family were early settlers there in Millbridge. There is one tragedy that came about the same time, not exact same time, but around the same decade, As Elizabeth Short's death, and that involved Phoebe's sister, Edna. Her sister had four children, so Edna would be Elizabeth's aunt. She had two girls and two boys. Only the boys made it to adulthood. Oh. The first daughter, Alice, died as a baby, and the second daughter was Genevieve. And I found this article in the Bangor Daily News on June 6, 1941. Bar Harbor girl dies as a result of car accident. Genevieve Barstow, 18, was to be graduated this month. So, apparently, she was in a motor collision, and she died right before she was supposed to graduate from high school. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Yeah. And And this was Phoebe's sister? That was her niece. So, Genevieve would have been first cousin to Elizabeth. Okay. Now, it might not, it probably isn't related, but I find it interesting, but that is also the year that Elizabeth dropped out of high school. Because Mm -hmm. Elizabeth dropped out of high school her sophomore year in 1941. Mm -hmm. So it would have been months after, probably, but still kind of frightening. So Elizabeth's grandfather was Charles Turner Sawyer. He was born in 1863 and died in 1901. Not long. You know what? I made a mistake. And I, I need to correct that now for our listeners. Because I think my notes were just bad notes. And Phoebe was actually not a... Seventeen when she got married. She was probably twenty when she okay. got married. But still, marrying a thirty-three-year-old—that's a little much. She was born in eighteen ninety-seven. The reason for my confusion is that poor Phoebe, her father died when she was only four years old. He died in nineteen o
1: one. And
0: there seems to be a bit of a pattern with fathers dying young on the Sawyer line, because Charles's father was Emory Sawyer. And he died in 1883 at the age of 51. So there just seems to be a little bit of a pattern there. The Sawyer line goes pretty far back. In fact, the Sawyer line was part of the original settlers in Millbridge, starting with Josiah Sawyer. But we're not going to follow the Sawyers too far back, although some of it's very interesting, because I want to get to the Brown side of the family. Bebe's mother, Elizabeth's grandmother, was Ella Leonore brown and she was born in 1869 in millbridge and she lived a long life she died at the age of 89 in portland maine her parents were john haskell brown and mary ann campbell john haskell was a mariner and i can't seem to emphasize this whole line of browns was basically nothing but sailors and sea captains and fishermen i mean they are everywhere the sea was in their blood. Right. The salt was sense. in their veins. <laughs> but it makes sense. They're seeing along this mouth to this bay that goes right into the Atlantic Ocean. They're right on the coast. It's a mm-hmm. seafaring village. That's their livelihood. So we're going to explore the Brown Line because it gets really interesting. And using birth and marriage records of Maine and Massachusetts, I found the following. John's father was Captain William Brown, who was born in 1803. His father was Simeon Smith Brown, Sr., born in 1777. Simeon was the son of Revolutionary War soldier, Jesse Brown, Jr., born in 1738. Don't worry, I'll, I'll catch you up where we're at in just a minute with Elizabeth. His grandfather, so Jesse Brown, Jr.'s grandfather was James Brown. He was born in 1675, I believe. So James Brown would be Elizabeth's sixth great-grandfather. He was married to Ruth Snow, her sixth great-grandmother, who was born in 1679. Ruth was the granddaughter of Nicholas Snow. Nicholas arrived in Plymouth, Massachusetts in 1623 on the ship Anne. The Anne was a ship that carried passengers as well as much-needed supplies to the original pilgrims. A week later after the Anne arrived, the little James, a smaller ship carrying primarily cargo, and only 15 passengers arrived. Now, the crew left the passengers at the colony and returned with cargo, such as timber and beaver skins. But Nicholas Snow stayed. And four years after Nicholas arrived in 1627, he married Constance Hopkins. Nicholas and Constance would be Elizabeth's eighth great-grandparents. And this is where it gets really cool, because let's talk about Constance. Constance was the daughter of Stephen and Mary Kent Hopkins. Her mother died when she was just a child. And her father married Elizabeth Fisher in 1617. In 1620, he and his family boarded the Mayflower, headed for the New World. In fact, Elizabeth gave birth to Constance's half-brother, Oceanus, the only child born on the Mayflower, along the journey. This basically means that Elizabeth Short is a Mayflower descendant. Wow. I wonder if they know that. I don't believe they do, or if they do, they haven't recorded it, because I haven't found anybody else who made that connection, Mm -hmm. because unlike H.H. Holmes, where everybody's done his tree, Mm -hmm. nobody's really done Elizabeth Short's tree. Mm -hmm. There's a couple, but the big clincher was trying to find the connection between William Brown and Simeon Smith Brown Jr., Mm -hmm. and when I finally found it, um, I found it through marriage records that were on the... Let, let me go back for a second. Eastham, Massachusetts, which is part of the Cape is where the Brown family first settled. I mean, they got to Plymouth. They didn't stay there very long. Then they went to Eastham, And I, I think I talk about that later, but I might not. <laughs> um, but that's where I found the records is I had a list of all the marriage and birth records from the time. And that's when I was able to make the connection. Okay. Otherwise, now, if I've made a mistake in connections, feel free to let me know. But This is why I found, and I do believe it's pretty solid that she's a Mayflower descendant. But there's even more, because that's not all, okay? Constance's father, Stephen, right? Well, Stephen Hopkins' first trip to the New World wasn't on the Mayflower. Oh, no. In 1609, as a minister's clerk, he voyaged to Jamestown, Virginia, a settlement that was established in 1607. And he did so on the ship, the Sea Venture. Unfortunately, his ship wrecked in Bermuda. They were stranded for 10 months on this island. Six months in, he and others mutinied against the governor. And Stephen was sentenced to death. Oh. Yes, for mutiny. He begged and pleaded for his life, mentioning his wife and family back in England, and his life was spared. During this time, though, during that 10 months while they were in the, on this island, the castaways built a new ship and eventually made it to Jamestown. Now, it was while he was in Jamestown, at least that's what people seem to believe, that his first wife, Constance's mother, Mary Kent, died in 1613. Hmm. Okay, So he's left in 1609. It's now four years later. He received the news by letter in 1614 because mail back then was not nearly as fast because it, you had to do it by ship. <laughs> and soon after learning of her death, he returned home. At this point, by the time he gets home, he's been gone for five years. Now, keep in mind what this would mean for the family. Constance would have only been three when he left, and her brother Giles would have been only one. So here comes this father they don't know. Um, So, then he remarries, partly in part to help raise his children, I imagine. They have some children, and they go to Massachusetts. Now, Nicholas and Constance moved to the Cape, like I said, in eastern Massachusetts in the 1640s. And they are noted as having had 12 children. Oh, my. (laughs) Yes. She was very generous to God. Yes, she was, including Ruth Snow. Now, that's... Her family. And I wish I could have gotten more on her dad. But like I said, I was very stuck. And it frustrated me to no end.
1: Well, I have to tell you, I find it intriguing that you think that, okay, he may not have been using his real name. Um, And that was not the most unheard of thing around that time. Because the records were so poor that, I mean, look at H.H. Holmes. I mean, you know, look at other people at the time, or the people, you know, who, you know, what, 3,000 people went missing during the Chicago World's Fair, a lot of those people just adopted new identities, and so it wasn't unheard of, and it would be fascinating to, if we ever learn, like, what his family story really is, because he obviously had no problems with doing things like faking his own death, right, <laughs> you know, leaving and, his family abandoned.
0: And just faking his own death and then even not wanting to have anything to do with her after she died. I mean, the callousness of just that. Yeah. He had no problem leaving her. And and his kids were, when he left, the oldest would have been nine mm-hmm. and the youngest would have been one. Mm-hmm. He didn't care about them. It wasn't, I so I, I doubt no. the issue had anything to do with the money that was lost from the Great Depression and the stock market crash. I think he used that as an excuse to Mm -hmm. escape a situation he didn't want to be in anymore.
1: Right,
0: right. Do you know, did he ever remarry? I found nothing showing that he remarried, I don't believe. But let me just double check really quick because after a while with all these names, (laughs) I sometimes lose track. Now, if he did, I didn't find evidence of it. Okay. And I, I did look. I also wonder because I can't find him in the 1940 census. Hmm. So it makes me wonder, was he busy moving and wasn't at a place where they could catch him or had he changed his name? So his family couldn't find him. Yeah. And then he decided for some reason by 42 to get in touch with his older daughter, mm-hmm. or maybe she somehow found him. I don't know, mm-hmm. but it makes me think, question whether or not he is who he said he was and I don't even know how to prove that other than there are some things I could do <laughs> like requesting his application for a social security card and those things but since it's self-reported yeah. he would probably lie on that too if he is lying so it's not going to do me any good because back then and this is this social security was so new He's born in 1885. There weren't necessarily birth records. Birth records weren't officially being kept in most places at that time. There's some communities that did anyway. There's some people that had churches that were keeping track. But birth records themselves are more difficult to find, especially back then. Now, we'll go, I decided at the last minute, as I told you last night, (laughs) I was like, I want to kind of look into what I can find on these suspects and there's so many to choose from so I asked you specifically I'm like Zelda which ones are you gonna be mentioning <laughs> just so I have an idea because you're right there's like 60 suspects people were turning themselves in mm-hmm. it's like they wanted the fame that would come with the murder yeah. I mean how yeah. sick is that but I guess people do that no matter what um, but he's kind of an enigma as well and I might be able to find him if I give him more time um his name was Patrick S O'Reilly and according to the World War II draft records the S stood for Shane Patrick Shane O'Reilly and on that record he said he was born in Leavenworth Kansas in March 1900 but yet I can't really find any O'Reilly's in Kansas in 1900 (laughs) and if I do it's it's it's, an O'Reilly is a very common name, and there was multiple different spellings of it. So, like I said, given enough time, I might be able to find more, but this was just in the last day. (laughs) Um, And he listed himself as a surgeon in the 42 draft. Um, In the 1930 census, though, he is listed as being from Northern Ireland. Hmm. So now, and I've mentioned this before on the the podcast, when it comes to the census records, that's so. Sometimes it's the neighbor reporting it, not the person who's there, or it could have been his wife at the time, and she didn't know. Like, oh well, her his family is from Northern Ireland and forgot where he was from. You never know. But in 1930, he was married to a Ruth. In fact, they got married in March 1930, and they were divorced in by 1940. And I have a guess it had something to do with what happened in 1939 that you brought up, and I'll, I'll where you bring up? He kept practicing medicine at least as late as 1963, if not a little bit longer. Um, and I found that in the California license directories at the time. That's just uh, so gross. And he had a practice in Glendale, California. And in 1963, he was married to a woman by the name of Lillian. I could not find marriage records for them.
1: Could you imagine finding out your doctor was a suspect in the Black Dahlia murder case. I'm like, I felt weird when my chiropractor, when I lived in Arizona, was um, arrested and put in jail for stalking someone. And I was like, that was my chiropractor. How weird. And he was not accused of murder, you know, or even like assault or anything. It was just stalking, but not just, but you know what I mean. And I felt strange and I'm sure he lost his practice over it. How, when, and there were so many other things that could connect to O'Reilly. I'm right. just, it, well, it, it boggles my mind.
0: You discussed what he did in 1939. I'm going to go over it again because I, I have a couple details details. I figure you might enjoy, and so will our listeners, um, that in the paper it's listed that he was charged of attempt to outrage. <laughs> and outrage is another way of saying like molest or rape, mm-hmm. those types of things. Um, Waleen Jane McCarthy, who was a telephone operator at his practice. And the LA Times in June 1939 gets into it and the testimony and that Waleen had testified that she accepted the ride home from the doctor and agreed to have dinner and drinks before returning home. And then he said, oh, I need to make a phone call. Do you mind if I stop? And then when they stop at his house, she refuses to go inside with him. Good girl. Right. When she declined, he hit her. Until she agreed. Wow. Yes. Then once alleged, once in there, when she refused him, he beat her further. Mm. I believe it was doctors from his own practice who treated her afterwards. Wow. Yes. So the trial got delayed. He was doing all this maneuvering, so he wanted to go to trial on this. He claimed in testimony that she was the one who wanted to make a phone call and that she just tripped and it was a fall. Wow. And obviously it wasn't believed because he was found guilty on the 29th of September, 1939. But this is the part that gets me. He attacks a woman he's found guilty. He's only fined $2,500, which granted that times a lot of money and 10 years probation. And he didn't have to give up his medical license. Exactly. Wow. I will say kudos to Waleen, and I don't know what the result of this is, but she sued him for $50,000 in damages. Good on her. Yes. Now, what caught my interest when you were talking, and I'm bringing something up right now so I can take a good look at this, was the bright pictorial was removed, you said, correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. There is an article in 1934 about Dr. Patrick S. O'Reilly, about an actress by the name of Lucille Laverne. She was 56 at the time and she had had a surgery. Apparently Dr. O'Reilly literally, and this is, I'm gonna quote it, it's from the San Francisco Examiner, 18 October, 1934. Dr. O'Reilly literally created a new muscular system along the right side of Miss Laverne's body. For several days, she was near death, and then with a new muscular system beginning to work, she took a turn for the better and will live. It gets into more specifics about it, but apparently whatever was going on with her body, it was causing her to suffocate. The surgeons removed the muscles along the right ribs down to the lower ribs. They then split the muscles of the lower ribs and ribbons of muscles along the ribs to create muscles that would lift and lower the ribs and breathing. Wow. And if I'm correct in guessing, even though I'm not always the best at anatomy, I would guess that's the right pectoral muscles. Mm-hmm. And he perfected the technique. Makes me wonder. Interesting. I mean, he's perfected this technique, which sounds vaguely like what happened to the Dahlia. And it makes you yeah. go, huh? Yep. Which is a connection I hadn't made before. And I wonder if anybody else has. Okay, we're going to go to the other suspect, George Hodell. Yeah. Actually, yes. George Hill Hodell Jr. He was an only child. He was born in October 1907 in Los Angeles. His parents were immigrants. His father, George Sr., and his mother, Esther Leop. Now, George could not, he married so many women, I have no idea how many there were. Now, in the papers, it's mentioned that his first wife was a common-law wife. Mm-hmm. Now this, we're talking 1920s, 1930s. A mm-hmm. common law wife. California's liberal, and even back then it was a little bit more liberal, but it wasn't necessarily that liberal for that type of thing at the time. But what I find interesting is I'm not sure they weren't married, <laughs> um, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Um, but her name was Amelia or Emily J Lawson. She was born in Indiana. They had a son named Duncan in 1928 and lived in San Francisco. On the 1930 census, they marked themselves as married and that they married around 1927. And this is where I question if they were married or not. After they separated, she continued to use the last name Hodel Mm -hmm. until she remarried. And she married a man by the name of Franz Bergman in 1937. So was it common law? And she just saw herself as Hodel? Or did she think that they were really married and there was nothing legal about it?
1: Well, a common sure. law marriage is a legal marriage in the states sure. that it's recognized as. So um But don't you and, and honestly together? it was a lot more common than you would think. You really? know? It was sort of something I mean, I hate to put it this way, but Hillbillies did it a lot <laughs> because it's kind of, you know, it's a little hard to get to the courthouse sometimes and you just end True. up moving in and then all of a sudden you start having children and okay, guess we're married now, you know? Um, and as long as you do that for a certain period of time and tell people you're married and set yourselves out as married, everybody just kind of shrugs and goes, cool, you're married. You know, um,
0: so, well, didn't I mean, you know, this, I mean, would be ca- called common law if they were only together three years living together? It depends entirely.
1: I, I don't know California's law. Mm-hmm. I do know that in many states, it's seven years.
0: So right. who knows? I don't know.
1: But if they're telling people they're married, I mean, I'm not, how long were they together total?
0: According to them in the 1930 census, they were married in 1927. So three years at the time. Okay. Well, but then you have to
1: put yourself out as married to be considered common law married. Mm -hmm. So that makes sense that they would do that. When did they end up getting splitting up?
0: I believe they split probably around 1935.
1: Okay, so they may well have, you know, passed that limitations, Mm -hmm. where um, they would have been considered legally married. I should probably look that up to see what the common law laws were in California. I mean, they got married in California, or?
0: I believe so, if they were married there, but they they were considered common law. So Um, what I did find kind of fascinating was that in 1939, in um, the California voter registration, She is listed as her occupation as being a reporter. Oh, that is interesting. Mm -hmm. That is interesting. George's next wife was Dorothy Anthony. Um, She was born in 1911. So she was only a few years younger than him. They had a son by the name of Michael, who was born in 1939. And they also had their daughter, Tamar, that you mentioned. And what I find interesting, and I didn't get a chance to dig any further, was that in the 1940 census, they're together together. With Michael and Tamar's nowhere there Hmm. so it makes me wonder where Tamar is but I ran out of time (laughs) George was a was not a good man especially not to women so the 1940 census it's counted by like June as of October 16th 1940 on his World War II draft card he lists his wife as the contact person but then I noticed something about the card his address is scratched out And it's changed on the top. So Mm -hmm. I suspect they were separated at this point because his wife's address remains the same. And then just two months later in December 1940, so sometime between that October and December, they divorce because on December 2nd, 1940, according to the marriage records in Sonora, Mexico, he marries Dorothy Jean Harvey. Mm. And... Her first husband, and she was also the first wife of this person, happened to be film director John Huston. Oh, wow. So Dorothy Jean Harvey married John Huston, and he married her when they were both 19 years old in Los Angeles in 1926, and they divorced in 1933. Dorothy now marries George Hodel, but they divorced in 1946. And there's an article in the Hartford Sentinel on the 1st of May, 1946, saying Mrs. Dorothy Hodel, 39, was sentenced today to 90 days in jail for allegedly neglecting her children. After she testified she was so busy writing two books for children, she didn't have time to care for her own. <laughs> wow. Mhm. And the, the children that they were referring to are Michael, Stephen, the one who ended up writing the book, and Kelvin. There was also a note that she had been arrested for neglect twice before. Mm. You might wonder where was George Hodell? He was in Shanghai. <laughs> of course he was. He was working as medical director for the UNRRA, which is the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration. He returned in September 1946, according to a passenger list of the USS General AE Anderson. Now, I found interesting is she never remarried after the divorce and she lived a number of years later. Now the case with involving Dr. Hodell and his daughter happened in 1949, I believe you said that. So this is a couple of years after the Black Dahlia case. He wasn't really ever considered a suspect in the case until after 1947. And it wasn't until after the rape of his daughter. Now what I found interesting about this whole case, cause I was looking at it as well, was that her mother was put up as a witness. This would be the first Dorothy. Oh, it's heartbreaking. She got, the mother testified that she wouldn't believe her daughter under oath. She added that the girl for many years had made charges that men had molested her, saying they were proven false. Wow. She testified against her own daughter, saying she made up stories. That's crazy.
1: You got to wonder if he was, if she was still dependent on money from him or something,
0: you know? So, now she was remarried at this point. So wow. you wonder, um, it's fascinating, but that was in the Los Angeles Times in December 1949. And there was also a note that, as you noted, Tamar had an abortion because she was pregnant with her own father's child, and two other people were charged with giving her the abortion. And then, like you said, and this is right before Christmas, he's found not guilty. And what I found interesting was that the jury makeup was seven women. violently really? hmm mm-hmm. I'm judging them. And me too.
1: Do you wonder if later, when all this stuff came out, like, did they ever look back and go, damn, we did we did a bad thing there? You know,
0: I I hope hope so. so. I hope so, too. Now, George's father was George Hill Hodel Sr. He was born in 1873 in Odessa, Ukraine, and he died in 1954. He was a life insurance salesman, according to the World War One draft, Mm -hmm. and he arrived in the US in May 1901. In New York City. So he probably did come through Ellis Island. Hmm. And I finally found the record where he arrived. It took a little bit. And it was, he arrived with his wife, Esther Leov, on the first Bismarck that departed from Hamburg, Germany. And his name was not originally Hodel. Really? really? Oh, no. This is why it took me a little bit to find him. It was Holdhefter or it could have been hold oh. fester it's hard to tell with the handwriting and it was written in differently in a couple of places that's interesting <laughs> and they were naturalized citizens in 1906 and his wife was born in Shargorod i think it's Shargorod ukraine which was an area filled with russian jews mm-hmm. and i've seen other references that this was a jewish family and my guess is that they're coming at that time it, there was a lot of persecution of jews in russia and I needed to escape that. And that's what I've got on Black Dahlia's family and other people involved. You found some really intriguing stuff there.
1: I try. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wow. Was there anything that, what did you find the most surprising that you found?
0: For me, I think it was the Mayflower. Because a lot of people will try to claim that they're a Mayflower descendant, but they aren't. And it was fascinating. And she, there's a lot of her family that were soldiers in the Revolutionary War. In fact, one I didn't mention, goes back to her grandfather, Charles Turner Sawyer. His mother was Phoebe Turner, Phoebe Turner. So I going to count this back really quick. So we have her grandfather, great-grandmother, great-great, great great. Her fourth great-grandfather was Abiel Turner, was born in 1741 in Plymouth Massachusetts and he was also a revolutionary war soldier was proven by the daughters of the American Revolution oh wow and any of that family happens to be listening you can become a son of the American Revolution or a daughter because <laughs> that's one of those proved lines but there's a lot of them <laughs> and it's just very deep roots in that community I think that was the other surprise is how many fishermen and how many sailors and sea captains they had in this family mm-hmm. not surprising when you look at the geography of millbridge but still surprising all the same because most of my family is farmer 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 <laughs> <laughs> so to me it's like Ooh, something different it's so exciting <laughs> and i, I, I do want to add some of my sources i didn't mention yet for wikipedia pilgrim hall museum plymouth Patuxet webpage, and mayflowerhistory.com. Wow. Well, thank you so much. I learned a lot today. This was fun. good. I had some, it was fun. It was kind of nice to do a different perspective, kind of a fresh air. Granted, how she died wasn't fresh at all, but I kind of like when we can, and we won't do this that often, but giving back that person, their agency, their family Mm -hmm. in a positive way, I hope because nobody deserves to be murdered, much less like Elizabeth was.
1: Oh, no. Well, and it just, what what is so tragic about all of this is that, you know, she had a rough life, Mm -hmm. but was basically a happy person, you know, from all accounts. She, you know, okay, she liked to date. Okay, so what? She was she's 23 I mean hello it was after the war they we won the war everyone's in a celebratory mood you know and she had dreams that would not be denied and um and that she ended up the way that she did was purely because of people she just happened to meet and, and that it's just so tragic
0: well and as somebody recently put and it might have been on this other podcast i listened to you know they try to paint her as this prostitute because mm-hmm. she was going on all these dates. Well, whether she was definitely aspiring to be an actress or not, she's single, money is tight. Somebody asked you on a date, that means a meal. Mm -hmm. So you go. Mm -hmm. And one thing you didn't mention, and I I forgot about, um, is she had been actually engaged at one point.
1: Yes. Yeah, I kind of like just brushed over relationships because, you know, there were several people where, you know, she lived with that, first guy for a little bit. And then they broke up. He reportedly was abusive. And then, um, and, but you know, the papers, I mean, what they did to her reputation, what they tried to do. I mean, even some went as far as to say, you know, that they, she was killed to cover up a botched abortion and she hadn't ever been pregnant. I mean, it was just all this stuff that they felt they could get away with. It was just possible. to sell newspapers. Well, and they know? shared,
0: she was actually arrested um around the time that I think she was staying with her brother in yeah. oh gosh. The, H- San, yeah, for and Santa Barbara, I believe. Yeah, it was first. Underage drinking. Like <laughs> and, and then it, they're like, she's this criminal element.
1: And I'm like, uh yeah, yeah, that's like me and my whole generation would have been.
0: <laughs> but no, the fiance I was talking about was apparently killed on in a plane crash on his way back from India oh yeah that's right and so that just adds it's like another tragedy she's dealing with Mm -hmm. and it's just she had a heartbreak a hard life in so many ways and I can't imagine her mother was so strong through all this and you see all these papers and she Mm -hmm. was really advocating for her daughter the best she could at the time and there were some limits
1: well I have to say you know she came from some strong stuff because Phoebe was a badass in her own right. Yeah. I mean, think about having five small children, you, you know, you'd been married to a near to well as it was, he takes off, it's on you. And she raised them working as a bookkeeper. Right. You know, and it's like, and back then it's not like, I mean, bookkeepers aren't overpaid now, but they really weren't paid very well back then. Mm-hmm. But you know, she got those kids, she raised
0: those kids and they were basically
1: good girls
0: you know, and she never married again. Mm -mm. (laughs) She, she raised some strong girls, Mm -hmm. some amazing girls as shown by each of her daughters. Mm -hmm. It seems like the ones that are still living have some happy lives going on from what I could tell Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and strong families. Mm -hmm. And that came from mom. Right.
1: Well, and even, you know, when people are talking about how you know Elizabeth was well you know she was glomming on to men and all this stuff it's like she had jobs you mm-hmm. know she was working as a clerk here and there um did she like to work well she had a little bit of a reputation for being a little lazy okay well that's like everybody right <laughs> you know? well she was a like middle child <laughs> and she was a middle child always overlooked um But I think that just the great disservice that the press did to her. And I I hate the press, you know, but this really was a case of everybody's trying to sell newspapers and they didn't mind, you know, completely tearing apart a young woman and her family in order to sell these papers. Well, yeah,
0: they were trying to blame her for her own murder instead of really getting at who did it, which is so indicative of how female victims Mm-hmm. could be treated especially at that time but mm-hmm. I think part of it was you know they've been at the war they're wanting it was a news story it was a slow news period mm-hmm. and this was an outrageous act it wasn't your typical shot in the back alley type of story this mm-hmm. was something unseen yeah. really before
1: mm-hmm. yeah
0: so it, it's fascinating so I look forward to getting back to with back to a serial killer <laughs> next time do we time. have a yeah. I do and I've, I've already worked on it a little bit and I'm getting ready to really go back at it and revisit it and start putting down notes so I we can discuss it but we're gonna probably touch on Glenn Edward Rogers next I've not even heard of this person this oh, is exciting yeah he he um he's actually been linked in recent years to so possibly being involved in the Nicole Brown Simpson murder Really? Yeah, the police aren't taking that link very seriously, but according to his own brother, he thinks he was involved.
1: Well, people are like turning their relatives over left and right in these things, yes. man. It's like, if it's not your brother, it's
0: your kids. <laughs> yes. So that one will be interesting. So I look forward to meeting up with you again and doing this soon. Sounds lovely. You have a good night now. You too. Thank you for listening to Murderous Roots. If you enjoyed our podcast, we hope that you'll subscribe and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you and any suggestions you might have for future episodes. You can find us on most social media outlets like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and even TikTok. You can also find us at MurderousRoots.com. That's M U R. D-E-R-O-U-S-R-O-O-T-S dot com where you can find more materials related to the episode that we just discussed.